follow Christ. Ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ, 2 Nephi 13, paragraph 2. To follow Christ is not merely an action. It requires the underlying intent of the action to include full purpose of heart, acting without hypocrisy or deception before God, having real intent, seeking to repent of one's sins, and witnessing unto the Father that one is willing to take upon him or her the name of Christ. The Father declares, Yea, the words of my Beloved are true and faithful, 2 Nephi 13, paragraph 3. The reason Christ is the Father's beloved is directly related to his words being true and faithful. That is, Christ only does and says what he knows represents the Father's will. He has done this from the beginning, 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 4. He represents the word of the Father because one can find in Christ's words and deeds the very word of the Father, see TNC 93, paragraph 2. It is this that qualified Christ to be the Redeemer. His words are faithful and true. So are Nephi's words, his words are the Lord's, though they were delivered by a man. Nephi, having been true and faithful in all things, was able to converse with the Father and the Son through the veil and receive from them further instruction, counsel, warning, and comfort because of the things he learned. This is the pattern for all. This is the culminating message of the Gospel of Christ. What does the idea of following Christ imply, if it were taken to its fullest extent? Why would that require someone to go from one small degree to another? What would be involved for someone to pass from exaltation to exaltation as Joseph mentions in his discourse in April, 1844? How fully must we follow Christ? Forever. This has typically been made the compound word forever, but the meaning of that word doesn't align with the old language's statements. Forever means ongoing in infinite perpetuity. But then how does one add ever to that, as in forever and ever? You cannot add more to infinite perpetuity. The old Hebrew phrase translated into this phrase meant to the horizon, and again, it maintained finite limitations, but of great degrees. By keeping forever as two words, ever may be understood as some finite portion to which additional ever can be added. The term connotes cycles or returning patterns, as in Christ's statement in my Father's house are many mansions, TNC 98, paragraph 3. When the term mansion was used in King Jamesian English, it meant a temporary stop or what modern language would term a motel. Forever and ever implies moving from place to place, or going from a state to a state, in cycles that continue endlessly. See also the glossary entries, Worlds Without E.N.D. Mansion Forgetting Ignoring Joseph Smith Refusing the gift God offered Man's first obligation now is to remember. Until man remembers what was given before, there is no reason for God to give more. Forgetting includes reinterpreting the language by divorcing it from context, supplying new meaning not originally intended, and improperly using Joseph to vindicate later improper innovations. How much study should be given to the history of the Restoration? 
How carefully should Joseph's teachings be preserved, studied, and followed? When the Lord commanded us to give heed to all his meaning Joseph Smith's words and commandments to what extent are we justified in forgetting his words and teachings? Joseph Smith History Part 18, Paragraphs 4-5 Forgiveness God is no respecter of persons. All are alike to him. Qualifications are based upon the behavior and faith of the person, not on their status or past mistakes. Most people think their errors are too serious an impediment for them to find acceptance from God. He doesn't want to judge his children. He wants to heal them. He wants to give them what they lack, teach them to be better, and to bless them. He doesn't want to belittle, demean, or punish them. When they ask him to forgive, he forgives. Even very serious sins. He does not want them burdened with sin. He wants them to leave it behind. His willingness to leave those errors in the past and remember them no more is greater than any can imagine. It is a guiding principle for the atonement. Asking for forgiveness is almost all that is required to be forgiven. What alienates mankind from him is not their sins, he will forgive those. What men lack is the confidence to ask in faith, nothing doubting, for his help. He can and will help when asked. In most cases, it is man's disrespect for themselves that impedes them from coming to him. They tend to think they are not good enough. However, because he is quick to forgive sins, it really doesn't matter if they aren't good enough. One of the first things he does when man enters his presence is to forgive all sins. He cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, but he has the capacity to forgive sin. Therefore, although your sins may be as scarlet, he can, he will, and he does make you white as snow, no longer accountable for your limitations. Therefore you need not fear, but you can approach boldly. Christ taught his followers to forgive so that they may, in turn, merit forgiveness. He said, For if you forgive men their trespasses who trespass against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 3, paragraph 30. Christ taught that there is atoning power in forgiving others. As a result of the things he suffered, he understood that men must forgive others in order to be able to obtain forgiveness. There are many things men do in which they lack the capacity to make amends. The price they must pay for their own transgressions is paid by forgiving all others of their offenses. Form of Godliness The Opposite of Godliness Having the pretense of godliness or a form that mimics it. The Lord condemned the doctrines of men being taught for commandments when he said, They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Joseph Smith History Part 2, Paragraph 5 What does having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof mean? Godliness means to be godly or close to God. It is possible to pretend to godliness, that is have a form that mimics it, without actually being close to God. 
The Lord lamented in the first vision to Joseph Smith that men have merely a form of godliness, insubstantial, unredeeming, incapable of saving. Froward The Hebrew Petal From the primitive meaning to twine or twist, is translated in the KJV as froward, wrestled, or twisted. Froward is a 12th century English word meaning moving or facing away from something or someone, as opposed to toward which means moving or facing in the direction of something or someone. Frowardness means stubbornness or contrariness. If we are froward, we are stubborn or contrary with one another. We dispute. We find it difficult to agree. Much debate and anger is produced by frowardness. It requires strength to refrain from contention and disputes with froward and arrogant people. When one feels strongly that he is right or is firmly convinced someone else is wrong, it is difficult to bridle one's tongue and meekly persuade without contention. The Heavenly Mother, as wisdom, mentions her opposition to the froward. She declares she hates the froward mouth. We repel her by being argumentative and contrary with one another. The mother must possess great strength because she hates the froward, the contentious. She does not welcome that spirit in herself or any of her offspring. See Proverbs 1, paragraph 34. Fruit A genealogical term, in many instances. Family Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 2, paragraph 9. Christ's gospel involves perpetuating a family of gods. Marriage mirrors the infinite. The fruit to be saved refers to an eternal family, with God at the head. In John 9, paragraph 10 Christ compared himself to a true vine to which we all must connect if we are going to bear fruit. Christ inspired prophecies about a coming servant. We should all be his servants. For any of his servants to produce fruit they must connect to him, the true vine. Life comes from that connection. We are preserved by Christ, nourished through his word, and we pray in our sacrament prayers to always have his spirit to be with us. The vine and fruit refer to the family of God. The context is about becoming a son of God. He intends to make many sons of God, to bring many sons unto glory. Throughout Zeno's allegory of the olive tree, fruit means salvation, in a covenantal sense. It requires the promises made to the fathers, see Abraham 1, paragraph 1, to be the same covenant given to you. The Savior provided a test whereby one can easily distinguish between true and false prophets. You shall know them by their fruits, Matthew 3, paragraph 46. The question was, well, if there is a test to apply, in order to determine whether or not he Joseph Smith was a prophet, the presence of the test suggests the possibility of a prophet. I thought that an interesting point. Why would you have a test if there is not going to be another prophet? So, you shall know them by their fruits suggests the possibility that there will, in fact, be someone you better apply that test to, someone for whom the test will become both relevant and important. So I couldn't categorically dismiss Joseph Smith as a prophet for the reason there absolutely could never be more. Therefore, I needed to ask the next question, what are Joseph's fruits? In Matthew 6, 
paragraph 14, Christ explained how to measure fruit. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by the fruit. And Jesus said, O you generation of vipers! How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. And again I say unto you that every idle word men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Christ determined that the test for fruit is the words one speaks. But how should words be measured? Anger, conflict, violence, war, and division amongst families were just some of the results of the words Christ spoke. If Christ's words were measured by how people were affected by them, then Christ produced bad fruit. Therefore, the reaction people have to words cannot be an accurate measure of fruit. It must be the substance, the truth, or the independent value of the words, separate from how people respond to a man's words. Prophets and righteous individuals have been arousing anger, provoking violent reactions, and being called anything from foolish to vile because of their words, and that does nothing to diminish the goodness of their fruit. Fullness Completion of Development Each stage of experience has its own definition of what it means to gain a fullness. Fullness in the pre-existence is not the same thing as a fullness in mortality. In turn, the fullness of mortality is not the same thing as the fullness that comes next. Each stage of development has conditions, limitations, and an agenda. Right now one is only accountable for seeking a fullness of what pertains to mortality. We are not here to get exalted. We are here to continue progression which began a long time before our current birth. At the moment, you are being added upon by what you experience here, see Abraham 6, paragraph 2. At some point, you will have received what you need in this sphere, and can move on to the next stage of development. When you have gained everything you need from this life, you will have received the fullness from God. It is called the fullness because it is all that can be obtained here. It is not possible, however, to inherit everything God ultimately offers while here. Jesus lived as the example, proving the pattern for redemption from the fall as he progressed from grace to grace until he received a fullness, or in other words, grew in light and truth until he was filled with truth and stands as the light of the world. And in this way he qualified to be called to become the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at the first. And I John bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father. And he received all power, both in heaven and on earth, and the glory of the Father was with him, for he dwelt in him. The Lord explained in the answer to prayer for covenant that the fullness is to receive the truth of all things, and this too from me, in power, by my word and in very deed, TNC 157, paragraph 53. Fullness of the Gospel This is used a number of ways in Scripture, first, it is an explanation of what the Book of Mormon contains. See, for example, Joseph Smith History Part 3, Paragraph 3 or TNC 26, Paragraph 7. 
In that sense, the term refers to a collection of prophetic testimonies about Jesus Christ as their Redeemer and guide to salvation and, in turn, Christ's role as universal Savior and Redeemer of mankind. Second, it is a way to identify Christ revealing himself to mankind, thereby redeeming mortals from the fall. It is in this sense that the term is used in TNC 69, paragraph 3, the ascent to God is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows up very early in the first chapter by Lehi. Then it is repeated by Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Mosiah, and Alma, describing their ascent experiences. It continues throughout. Third, the Lord has used it to describe an everlasting covenant, the fullness of my gospel which I have sent forth in these last days, the covenant which I have sent forth to recover my people which are of the house of Israel. TNC 23, paragraph 3, section 31, paragraph 3, section 52, paragraph 1, and 1 Nephi 3, paragraph 4. Joseph Smith used the term in his writings and teachings at different times with different meanings. Learning these mysteries of God is the fullness of Christ's gospel. The fullness of the gospel consists of asking God, receiving answers, revelations, knowledge, and finally, in the second comforter. Fullness of the Priesthood A term that was used by Joseph Smith at different times with different meanings. It always conveyed that the recipient had accepted all that had been given to a point in time. The willing readiness to accept all that had been offered by the time of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple meant the believer had been ordained to the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, had been baptized, and as the then-current practice involved, had been re-baptized and passed through an initiatory washing and anointing. The term used later during the late Nauvoo period of Joseph Smith's life involved all of the foregoing and, in addition, an endowment and sealing, second anointing, and finally an adoption process tying the individual into a family relationship that would endure after death. Because the fullness of the priesthood was used dynamically and not statically by Joseph Smith, various revelations making use of the term should not be read as having a single meaning. In a final sense, fullness of priesthood will be post-resurrection and will come to those who have continually manifested a willingness to accept the dynamic and progressive fullness of the priesthood offered by God to man in the development and restoration of all things. Fullness of the Scriptures Joseph Smith restored the Book of Mormon as his first assignment. But he was also required to revise the Bible. Joseph referred to the revision of the Bible as the fullness of the scriptures. He referred to the Book of Mormon as only the Book of Mormon. Joseph's reference to the fullness of the scriptures was exclusively to the Bible. In the minutes of an October 1831 conference, Joseph made the statement, God had often sealed up the heavens because of covetousness in the church said the Lord would cut his work short in righteousness and accept the church receive the fullness of the scriptures they would yet fall. After that warning on July 17, 1840, two men were assigned to go on a mission for the purpose of raising money to publish scriptures. This included a new edition of the Book of Mormon and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. It is called a translation but is more correctly understood as the prophet's inspired revision clarifying the text. In October 1840, a letter to all the saints was published in the Times and Seasons asking for their full support in the effort to publish the new translation of the scriptures. 
That effort failed to put the Joseph Smith translation in print, and Joseph died without it ever being published. Excerpts with edits done by others were published by the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it failed to include Joseph's entire work. The fullness of the scriptures, or Joseph Smith's inspired revision of the Bible, has never been available in full, in print, until now. They are published for the first time in the new set of Restoration Edition scriptures. They can be found in the Old Testament, now called the Old Covenants, and in half the volume called the New Covenants. The fullness of the scriptures, without which the church would fall, is being made available for the first time.